Back in Mark chapter 8, and we're near the end of the chapter. We've come as far as verse 34. we read there. When he, that is Jesus, had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his fathers with the holy angels. So as we come to the end of this chapter, Jesus has begun to tell them what his task is that's ahead of him, that he's going to be rejected, uh, turned over, crucified. On the third day, he will rise again. And after this, you know, he rebuked Peter uh, for saying, oh, this will never happen to you, Lord. And he said, those are the things of, you're mindful of the things of men, not of the things of God. And, and after this, he begins a powerful corrective to their worldview, to the worldview of those surrounding him. He, he's got the disciples there. He calls the rest of the crowd together and says these things to them that we just read. So we've seen him earlier in the chapter. He healed the blind man so that he could see all things clearly. The disciples have been prompted by Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, in a way that they might see Jesus more clearly. And then Jesus has rebuked Peter after his revelation and subsequent error. So Jesus tells him he's mindful of the things of man, not the things of God. And Jesus begins to tell them of the things of God. He has already told them of the Father's plan for him uh, in verse 31, which I mentioned. He began to teach them, Son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Of course, they didn't quite grasp what he was speaking of at this point, as we see subsequently. He now speaks to them of how these things of God apply to them and any who would desire to come after him. So these are the things of God that he talks about in the rest of this chapter. Do you want to follow Jesus? Yes. He says, anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself. This is not... Let him deny himself things, although it may involve that, probably will involve that, but it's far beyond that. But actually to deny himself a self-centered, self-focused life. Now Warren Wiersbe says, denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for a good purpose we occasionally give up things or activities. But we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey His will. So it's just as Jesus came not to do His own will, but the will of the Father, so are those called to follow Him. It is the will of God that is to be carried out, not the disciples' own will, not us latter-day disciples' own will. Now we see this in Jesus, and I'm just going to read some verses. These are reminders. They're not things you're not familiar with. 
See this in Jesus in John 5.30. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John 8, verse 28, Jesus says to these men, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Hebrews 10, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 40, says, and speaking of Jesus, says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. The volume of the book, the, the Old Testament Scriptures speak of Jesus coming. And the purpose for which His coming is to do the will of God or the will of the Father, we might say. That's a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 there in Hebrews. And it's a bit longer than what we read. Then in Matthew 26, in verse 39, Jesus in the garden praying, says He went a little farther and fell on His face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know that Jesus prayed this a second time in verse 42 of Matthew 26. And then he says he went away and prayed a third time the same way. So he's going through this struggle. This was like the ultimate denial of self for the Son, for Jesus. Because this is where it became most costly to him as he was to lay his life down. And so he's, you know, is there any other way? And, of course, to accomplish the purpose for us, there was no other way. He didn't have to do it. But to accomplish that purpose, that was the only way to go. And so he did. And then, concerning his followers, Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So just as he did the will of the Father, his followers are to do the will of his Father. Matthew 12 and verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. His mother and his brothers and sisters were outside trying to see him. And he says, that belongs to the people who are doing the will of the Father. Matthew twenty-one thirty-one. Which of you two did? The, which of the two did the will of his father? Now you know this story. There, a man with two sons, and he asked them to go work in his vineyard. And one of them said, "I'll go, Dad," but he didn't go. And the other one said, nah, "I got better things to do, Pop." And he ends up going and doing it. And so Jesus says, "Which of the two did the will of his father?" And they said to him, "The first. Well, he was the one that said he wouldn't go. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. He was doing the will of his Father. John twelve twenty six, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. We know in serving Jesus, we're doing the will of God. John 14:21 Jesus says he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him so he who keeps my commandments is doing his will right and doing the will of the father and what a promise he'll be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him
he who loves me. Uh, John 14.23, a couple verses later, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How about that? Not only will Jesus manifest himself to this person, but he and the Father will come and make their home with us. And we know that he comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then in John 15.10, if we wonder what commandments we could do that would please him, He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And we know that His command was given to them, that they love one another. So, denying oneself can sound very abstract. It only finds concreteness or solidity in its exercise. The denial of the self-life only finds fulfillment in the other-focused life. It is not realized in the denial apart from the serving of the will of another. You can't really deny yourself negatively and just, that's it. You know, it has to be spent somewhere else in order for there to be a real denial of self. Because in that self-denial or denial of self, you can still be self-absorbed, self-motivated. So, it only finds, uh, it's only realized from serving the will of another. It's, it can't exist without the positive of serving someone else. In our case, that's the Lord Jesus. It's in doing the will of Jesus that self is set aside. Self is denied. Not my own will. We sing that. You know, but thine be done. I fear much of our Christianity misses these basics. So first, there's this turning from a self-life that is an independent life. And then, he says, uh, anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Well, the cross is the instrument of death. You know, in our culture, we hear people talking about it's just my cross to bear, about troubles or problems or burdens. Uh, That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The cross is the same for everybody. It's the instrument of death or execution. You're taking your cross, dying to self. So it's laying down my life. It's becoming a servant. Over in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, in this same context, Jesus says to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. And follow me. So there, you know, he adds the stipulation that it be daily. If you die daily, then you can also come alive daily in the Lord. Alive to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, speaking of the resurrection, of course, Paul, verses 30 through 32, talking about the uh, what sense does it make for us to suffer if there's no resurrection? And so he says in verse 30, Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? There's no resurrection. I'm getting out of here. And he says, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So what Paul's saying is, I count myself to be dead daily. I die daily. And we'll see. He expounds upon that in some other passages in, in, the, in his epistles. 
in Matthew 20, verses 22 and 23. Uh, prior to this, um, James and John's mother had come to Jesus and said, I got a, a request. And he said, well, what is it? And they said, well, then my two boys might sit on your right hand and left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus says, okay, that's no problem. I can't afford to lose any followers. <laughs> of course, he doesn't say that. He, he talks to them. I, one place, you know, they ask him, but their mother is behind the whole thing. Uh, in verse 22, Jesus answers and says, You do not know what you ask. And they don't at this point. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, No problem. We are able. They were self-confident. And he says to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. It is coming. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And so, you know, basically Jesus is saying, you want to come after me? Okay, I'm going to the cross. Included is rejection and scorn. Come on! In Christianity, there, death is central. There's a centrality of death in the gospel for those who would follow Jesus. Um, Francis Schaeffer, in his book, True Spirituality, one of his chapters is titled The Centrality of Death. And if you read that, he's talking about how to actually fulfill and live the Christian life. Only Christ can live the Christian life in us. In order to do that, we have to die to ourselves and live for Him. There's a book out on the book table uh, called The Green Letters. And it's the first book in a volume which is uh, Principles of Spiritual Growth. And it covers this topic if you if you want to delve into this deeper. It's actually a series of five books. You can get the complete Green Letters. It's by Miles Stanford. And he goes into these things as well. So, um, you know, we won't have time to go super in-depth in the time we have this morning. But a central feature of the Christian life is death to self. There is no life in Christ apart from death to oneself. Taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, a slave by choice, abdicating the throne of my life and bowing down to a new king, a new lord, a new master who's now in charge of my life. In Philippians 2, 9-11, verses you know very well, speaking of Jesus after He had died, says, Therefore God also highly exalted Him and has given Him the name which is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the boss. He determines what we're to do, when we're to do it. As Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, so does his faithful servant or slave. As Philippians 2.8, just a verse before it says, Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now the cross was the most um, scandalous death possible in that day. Uh, it was for the criminals who deserved execution. And basically you were stripped naked and hung before anybody who would be there to see you. Some people were, were tied to the cross 
really bad ones like Jesus, they were nailed to the cross. Probably depended on how many spikes they had available and what kind of rope was laying around. But we know that it was prophesied that Jesus would be pierced in his hands and his feet. But just as there was no shortcut for Jesus, there's no shortcut for us in, uh, to sharing in the life of God. In taking up the cross daily, we are returning to a right relationship with God, returning from a rebellion against God and His commands, and coming back into a position of obedience and submission to what He desires and commands. Death to self doesn't happen automatically. Conscious decisions must be made. So we have to, you know, die daily. Today, I will take up my cross and follow Jesus. You know, if that doesn't register with us, today I will, you know, go to death row. Take my place among, among the condemned. Today I'll go to the gas chamber. Today I'll face the firing squad. Today I'll go to the gallows and follow Jesus. Now, we're not talking about perfection. I don't know if, I don't know of anybody who has accomplished this in perfection. Probably not even Paul because he said, I'm not you know, counting myself as to being perfect. But this is the path and this is the goal to experiencing life with Jesus. Uh, but it's something believers will grow and mature in. Uh, again, Miles Stanford refers to these aspects of the Christian life as principles of spiritual growth. So it's it's growing. You grow by dying. You know, that's the way it works. Now, you know, Jesus will talk about this. The denial of self, that is, death to self, is about saving your life or your soul. That's within our context here. He who denies himself or loses his life shall save his life. That's what it's about. It's not, you know, the, the centrality of death is there, but it's beyond that. Jesus, you know, looked beyond the cross, the joy that was set before him. The Greek word for uh, life or the soul is suke. It's most often translated soul or life. There are a few places where it's uh, translated differently and they're used, the words, the English words are used interchangeably. When you read here, and he says, um, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The words life and soul are the same. Greek word. And certainly your, your life is your soul. So it's the breath of life, as in Adam, the spirit or soul that is a living being. It's you. If you want to save your life or your soul. You can save it or you can lose it. Shall you lose yourself or save yourself? Some speak of finding themselves. You remember that phase where everybody was talking about, i got to go find myself. Uh, if you find yourself, you will have to deny that self if you want to come after Jesus. This is not about being destroyed. This is about being saved. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the cost of discipleship. It's not that you can purchase anything by what you do. We cannot earn anything in relation to salvation or in relation to life. 
As we're told in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's, it's a free gift that He gives for those who will believe. He's freely given us all things that pertain to life and godliness by His promises, as we're told in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. In uh, Titus 3.5, we're told that He saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And salvation is all of faith. There are no works involved in any way. Ephesians 8, 2, 8, 9, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. He's referring back to the salvation, the whole package. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, these are the basics. One cannot earn salvation, but inherent in coming to Jesus is a forsaking of our own way. A giving of ourselves over entirely into His hands. There's no concept in the New Testament of becoming a believer and then just going out and doing whatever you would like to do becoming his disciple that's it's not a concept it's returning to god returning to the fold returning to the sheepfold and then you're a sheep in his sheepfold and you hear his voice and, and you follow him over in luke chapter 14 uh, verse 25 we see this section of the gospel where he talks about counting the cost basically it says, uh, verse 25, great multitudes went with him. Anytime there were great multitudes around Jesus, he started teaching them some of these kind of things. And many of the multitude left. We'll see that, you know, John chapter 6, that happens. So these great multitudes were with him. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's pretty strong. But of course, you know, when we talk about this hate, it's a, it's a comparative thing in comparison to our love for Jesus, our love for anything else, must be rendered as hate. So he's saying, you're going to put other things ahead of me, you can't be my disciple. He says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundations, not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Oh, you've seen unfinished houses? Anybody ever seen those? Where people start to, to build a house and you drive by and it's just sitting there in the same state for years and years. And then he says, uh, they say this man began to build and was not able to finish. So you want to be in a position where you know what the cost is going to be and you're, you're making the right decision to give everything that needs to be given. Right? And then in verse 31, he says, Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and, re and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He says you've got to forsake everything if you want to be my disciple. That's a lot. His terms, if we look at the, the um, armies, 
His terms are absolute surrender. You can make peace with Him, but those are the terms. You realize that He is Almighty God and you cannot prevail however much you may try or whatever resources you may have. The only reasonable course is to lay down your arms, surrender, and become His servant or slave is the word. He requires that you forsake all that you have or you cannot be His disciple. This is once again spiritual. We're not talking material or physical. Uh, you know, it may involve everything else, but we're assured that as we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out. In 1 Timothy 6, 7. So you give up yourself. That's the only thing that you really possess or control. Everything else is going to depart from you. You're going to depart from it at the time of your death. So you only have one thing to offer, and that is who you are. It is all you have to give. The rule of your own life. Your self-will. You may be the king of a vast domain, but when you surrender, all that you have is also surrendered to him, for him, to do with as he will. The flesh will try desperately to avoid this. All sorts of good works. Now, good works are good, and we're exhorted to good works, but they're not justifying works. And so the flesh will try to do all sorts of things to be justified before God, desperately trying to avoid the cross. But the Spirit longs for it and will find a life beyond description through and beyond the cross. Now, similar to the song we sang earlier, there's that a song that George Beverly Shea was one of me was famous for, which is, I'd rather have Jesus. Says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or to be or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to His dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to His holy name. He's fairer than the lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let Him lead. I can save my life by giving it up to Him, or I can lose my life by clinging to it and maintaining my own will. There is a cost to be considered in following Jesus. Jesus makes demands upon my life. Jesus doesn't have a fire insurance program. He has a death-to-life program. The death must be enacted before the life can be obtained. This transaction takes place in the spiritual realm when we place our faith in Jesus and is then to be lived out in our world. And we'll see some about that. Uh, you know, it happens when we place our faith in Christ, but then it's up to us to walk in what has occurred. Counting the cost. Is there anything worth the cost to you of your soul or your life? This may seem paradoxical, losing my life to save my life, but it's quite literal. Jesus is not saying that only those who are physically martyred for His sake will save their lives 
But it is true that only those who lose their lives for his sake or the gospels will save their lives. They may lose their lives by having them forcibly taken from them, or they may lose their lives by laying them down at Jesus' feet, giving their life to him, that is, denying self, taking up their cross, and following him. Jesus doesn't talk about the new life aspect of the redemptive transaction in our passage here, other than to say that he will save his life. That's that's as far as it goes there. He loses his life, he'll save his life. Save his life, he'll lose his life. Okay. He speaks of it in other places, but here he's emphasizing the entryway to following him and saving the life. The saving of one's life is a sharing in the risen life of Christ Jesus, as we'll see other places. Romans chapter 6 Paul talks at length in Romans 6 about this uh, aspect of this that we're talking about, about uh, losing the life, saving the life. He says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he's just said where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And so this is the objection people would make. Oh, well, I should continue in sin. So, so it would be a lot more grace. And he says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, how did we die to sin? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism is a picture of dying, which is actually a picture of being buried. But you don't, you're not buried unless you're dead. No, you're not supposed to be. I know, I've seen the movies too. But... <laughs> You're supposed to be dead when you get buried. And so this baptism is a picture of, of being... And he says in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So it's not just the death, but the death has to be first before the raising. And so that we may walk in newness of life. We're able to walk in newness of life at that point. He says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, and here's the facts, you know, this is what we know, and He's going to talk to us about how we um, grasp hold of it. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So this is the corollary of Jesus dying for us, which is true. He died upon the cross to purchase us back to him and to wash away our sins. But there is a Another aspect to it, which is when he died, when our faith is put in him, we are counted as having died also with him. His death counts as our death. We know this. This is what God tells us, that our old man, the old nature, the old person, crucified with him. Why? So that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We don't have to serve sin anymore. We might still sometimes, um, you know, we're not perfect beings, but we don't have to anymore. He who has died has been freed from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And uh, we'll come back to 
Romans 6 and look at something else later. But we want to see there are several other places where Paul talks about this as well. Uh, Galatians 2.20, again a familiar verse. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. So, Paul again says, I've been crucified with Christ. And we've got, we've got more than one I in the verse. You know, It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So, one I has been crucified with Christ. The other I is alive in Christ. I like the, the way the King James says it. Um, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I... But Christ lives in me. There, there's more than one eye. The, the first eye is the old man. He's crucified with Christ. The second one is the, the one who's been raised to newness of life, to follow, to walk, to serve the Lord. Uh, how do I realize this? I live as the new man. Practically, daily, I put off the old man and I put on the new man. And this is the uh, illustration that Paul gives us. In Ephesians chapter 4, for example, 20 through 24, he says, You've not so learned Christ, talking about those uh, Gentiles that darkened in their minds. He says, You've not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. He's still the same, and he's not completely gone. You have to put him off. And the putting off is a daily thing. And, and this, this picture we're getting is like a garment. You would take off this old rotting, stinking garment and you lay it aside and you put on the new, clean, holy garment. And he says this, that uh, you put off the old man and you're renewed in the spirit of your mind through his word and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the new man, the, the second eye. He's created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And he, he doesn't need anything else to be perfect other than to uh, have full redemption take place in this body glorified. He's, he's like Jesus already. He's been created to be like Jesus. Uh, he says pretty much the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, 8 through 10. He says, Now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There's that new man with the image. He's in the image of him who created him. So this is done by faith in the work and the promise of God. I don't have any power to make myself new. Now, there's no, no way the old man can be reformed. He's hopeless. He can only be killed. That's the only, only mercy that can be done to him is to put him out of his misery. And so by faith in what God says, I put off the old man. I put on the new man. I remind myself. I'm renewed in the spirit of my mind. I remind myself, okay, today, i got to stay away from this old guy. And i got to walk in the new guy. i got to put on the new man. Uh, Galatians 6.14, later on in that book, 
Paul writes, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So again, this death, this death is in relation to me and the world. If you die physically, you're done with this world. Right? And so Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying, I've died to the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, we're told the love of Christ compels us, Paul speaking of himself, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. This is how it's counted in God's accounting house. As Jesus died for us, he says, okay, everybody died in Jesus. And he died for all that those who live should no longer and should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. And so there's that denying of ourselves, following after Him, living for Him rather than the self-life. Second Timothy 2, 11 and 12, Paul says, This is a faithful saying, for if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. So on the other side of this death, just as with Jesus' death, there's life. Life beyond what we have ever known. Alive in Christ and with Christ Jesus. But it's a life with Him at the center. With Him in charge. With Him on the throne giving the commands, instructions, and directions. And that's really what my spirit longs for. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, it's later on, you know, a little ways after chapter 6, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is uh, the song we sang earlier about, you know, being a sanctuary that's prepared for Him. That's what this is, a living sacrifice. Sanctuary, a place where He lives. And so the death is to self, but I'm alive in Christ. I'm a living sacrifice. Not one that's up there, you know, slain and, and cooked, and that's the end. But I'm a sacrifice because I'm losing my life so that I might save it by turning it over to Jesus. And so I'm this living sacrifice to Him. Don't be conformed to this world, He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then, back in Romans chapter 6, if we look at verses 9 and on, Paul begins to speak to us about how we practically realize, how we practice this. In verse 9, he says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. We're to, be, we're to stay raised. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then he says, Likewise you also. The same way that Christ died to sin, no longer has death no longer has dominion over him. He died to sin once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. He says, likewise, you also. 
reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that reckoning, that is an accounting term. And we're to count ourselves as dead in Jesus. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now this is not wishful thinking. We don't think that by reckoning ourselves this way, this is how it's going to happen or why it's going to happen. It goes back to him saying, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. This is where the reckoning takes place. This is where we see uh, if one died for all, then all died. It's in the work and the promise of God that we place our faith. And if we reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, we're walking in that faith, uh, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then we will experience the power of the Holy Spirit through faith to be able to walk in this newness of life that He gives to us, wants us to walk in. So he says in verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. So he's saying you got power to resist. You don't have to allow sin to reign in your mortal body. And he says here, uh, do not, here, here's how we do it. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The instruments, the parts of your body, your, your flesh, your mind, they can only be used for one thing at a time. Right? So they're either used as instruments of sin or as instruments of righteousness. And so as long as we're uh, using our, the members of our body as instruments for righteousness, then we cannot use them at the same time as instruments of sin. They're, they're mutually exclusive. And that's, that's why I was saying when you deny, you can't just deny the sin. You have to have something positive going on to replace it. And you can fight and fight and fight seeking to deny self without really uh, going in God's direction. And that's futile because that's the flesh trying to fight against the flesh. To turn yourselves over to the Lord. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. All this takes place by grace. And through faith in that which God has provided. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. And he gives, continues this illustration and uh, somewhere else he says, you know, I'm talking in human terms because of your flesh. You know, so he's given us this, this illustration, this thinking. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked. That though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And this is something God enables us to do as we reckon. And what he says is true in our experience, in our reality, because of what he's done. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus our Lord. So these truths that Paul starts talking about here in chapter 6 uh, carry on through chapter 7 and 8 of Romans. Uh, chapter 7, you find the hopelessness of serving God in the flesh, the old man, the futility of trying to pres- preserve the life of the old man. And, and you read chapter 7 there and he gets to the end. He says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And in faith, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, because He has delivered me. And then you come to chapter 8 and you you see the hope that's realized by life in the Holy Spirit. You died with Christ. You're buried with Him. You're raised. You're reckoned to be dead to sin. Uh, if you're still struggling with it, you're in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, walking in the Spirit, you've put in practice all these things we're talking about and losing your life, finding your life. Dying with him, being raised with him. So we have this illustration of the old man and the new man putting off, putting on. The old man is dead. Forever live the new man. Not long live the new man. Forever live the new man. That's the transaction that God has brought about in Jesus on the cross, having died in our place and us having died with him. Uh, we find Jesus talking about this again in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 27. Uh, Jesus goes to his last feast, and there were certain Greeks among those, verse 20, who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This this was Jesus speaking of himself. This is true of his followers. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. He says, Now my soul's troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. This was the purpose, the, the main purpose of his coming was to fall into the ground and die as a seed and to produce much grain. So what shall a man give for his soul? What is worth giving your soul for? The guy at the crossroads, you know, it was so he could play great guitar, mean guitar. Not a very good bargain to give up your soul. And people, I mean, people are giving their souls away for a pittance. You know, they don't necessarily get a real transaction, but they're, they're just rejecting the gift that God has to give. And they're losing their life. They do it for a temporary pleasure or power just for being in charge of their own life and not 
um, being subject to God, not hearing His commands, not seeking to follow Him and keep His commands. And so, they will lose their own soul because (laughs) there's nothing worth giving in exchange for it. So, he says here, the the last verse of... uh, Chapter 8, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, we're still in that generation, by the way, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, I'm not taking, speaking of a time frame here. I'm talking about the uh, aspect, the characteristics of this generation. We're, we're still there. And so... Uh, If we follow Jesus, we must be bold in proclaiming His worth and His words. There must be no shame in being identified with Him. Many who claim His name deny what He says is true. For example, regarding marriage, or sexual immorality, or economics, or justice. uh, Many other topics we we could name. Our generation remains one that is adulterous and sinful before God. We are not to be conformed to it, ashamed of our Lord by words, actions, or lack thereof. Uh, Henry Morris says, it is dangerous to distort God's word for the sake of worldly acceptance. In contrast, Jesus promised that he would confess before the Father those who had confessed him before men. That's in Matthew 10.32. You know, Something the opposite of what he says here at the end of this chapter. He says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So, kind of turning it you know, to the positive side. If you're to lose your life for his sake, then the truth of his words must become the truth you uphold without compromise or alteration. You stand on those words against all opposition or argument. They are the rock upon which you build your house, your life, your soul, that you may save your life. They form your worldview in opposition to all that says otherwise. Over in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul says, I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of of Christ. And then finally in John chapter 6, I mentioned this was a place where Jesus also said some hard things to the crowd and um, many left him. John 6, verse 66. I always find this verse interesting. 666. This verse says, "For From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Like the Antichrist first. He says, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 